The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio. The following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church. Of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Today's teaching comes from FIBC Senior Pastor. Senior Pastor, N. Eric Nielsen. Wheat in a wine press. Why in a wine press? Why would you thresh wheat in a wine press? Well, it says because they were trying to keep it hidden from the Midianites. The Israelites lived in constant fear, and Gideon too. So the angel of the Lord, as most commentators agree, is the Lord himself, likely a pre-incarnate Christ, as he's worshipped and an altar is built for him. And this is what he says to Gideon in chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, is what the angel of the Lord told him. And Gideon couldn't understand how could the Lord be with them. By all appearances, the Lord had abandoned them. The Lord called him mighty warrior, but how could he be a mighty warrior? He was the least in his family, which is the smallest in Manasseh. But the Lord was going to send Gideon to save Israel out of Midian's hand. And then the Lord gave Gideon his assurance through a sign. First, the Lord gave Gideon the instruction to go and deal with the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole beside it. So he tore it down, his father's own altar to Baal, and then erected a proper altar over it to the Lord. He cut down the Asherah pole beside it and he used that to burn and make a burnt offering of the bull from his father's herd. Now that sparked a confrontation. I'm really flying through the, reviewing this account for you. It sparked a confrontation between the townsman and Gideon's father, and then the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other people gathered for battle in the valley of Jezreel. And then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, and he sounds the trumpets to gather for battle. But as the country begins gearing up for battle, Gideon needs some more assurance from the Lord. Are you truly with us? So he puts out a fleece. Maybe you've heard this part of the story. He takes some wool from a sheep and lays it out on the, uh, on the ground and asks the Lord that tomorrow morning, if the wool is wet and everything around it is dry, then I'll know you're with me and sending me. Well, the next morning it was exactly that way. But Gideon said, let me have just one more sign. I'll leave the wool out again tonight. And if the wool this time is dry and the ground around it is wet with the dew, then I'll believe that you're with me. Now, God didn't consider that an ungodly test. God provided for him the assurance that he needed that he was going to be with them. And then an interesting thing happens, and maybe this part you haven't heard of before. But in chapter 7, 
God begins to pare down Israel's army. They were 30, 32,000 men strong, but God decides he only wants to use 300. In chapter 7, verse 1, read along with me. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left. These are the ones who were fearful, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them there for you. If you say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if, if I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. Now you can try to analyze the scripture and try to figure out why was it that it was the 300 who got down on their knees to drink that were selected and not the others. Sorry, the other way around, the 300 who lapped with their hands to their mouths and not the rest. Well, you can go back and forth on this one, but I think it was God was just choosing the minority because God wanted the fewer number of just 300 men. And with the 300 men that, I la that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. Now, I think you may know already the outcome of this battle. The 300 men were able to win against 135,000 other men. What does the story of Gideon teach us? Well, I believe that Gideon's season as a judge teaches us that God is greater than any enemy that we will ever have to face. I don't know what kind of enemies you may have to face. You certainly have the world as your enemy. We suffer persecution from unbelievers and other religious fanatics. We are easily conformed into the values and morals of this world because we're pressured into them. We're told to believe in the majority of what's so-called a scientific opinion, even if there's no scientific backing for that opinion, and not the ancient book, we're told that our values are too traditional or obsolete. We have enemies of our own flesh. You and I have evil desires in our flesh of pleasure and gluttony and laziness. We have sinful habits that are difficult to break, like anger and lust and pride. We have addictions to alcohol and drugs and sex, nicotine and caffeine. We have emotional enemies like bitterness and depression and anxieties. We have even the devil through whom we're tempted to fulfill those legitimate desires in illegitimate ways. We are spiritually under attack by the devil because we have previously opened ourselves to the occult, some of us. And we have, in the natural world, we succumb to, to, to strains of viruses, we contract diseases and sicknesses. And when we succumb to our enemies, we have failed to believe that God is greater than any of our enemies. As George Miller says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Remember the story of Gideon, and remember that God is greater than any enemy that we could ever face. 
God's strength is made known through our weaknesses. How did God demonstrate his own love for us? He did it while we were still sinners, not while we were righteous in our own right. How did God choose those to be saved? He chose the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the strong. God, the eternal God, took on human flesh, became a helpless baby, weak, and finally suffered death on a cross. As God told Paul, his grace was sufficient because his power is made perfect in weakness. God shows his immeasurable power when we're faced against enemies that we cannot conquer. And then God gives us the victory if we obey his will and rely upon him. Jesus demonstrated clearly he has power over any enemy. He could heal paralysis, he could heal blindness, he could heal leprosy, he could even bring the dead back to life. And every single believer in Jesus Christ is a testimony of how God can turn a life from sin. You know, even for us to come to God in salvation, our spiritual eyes have to be unblinded. That requires the work of God. Our hardened hearts have to be penetrated. That requires the work of God. And every believer like you and I can experience the victorious Christian life. Gideon's story should remind us that all we need is to know the will of God and to know that he is with us. In faith, we rely on his strength because he can cure any incurable disease should he choose to. He can break the addictive habit. He can free us from our bondage to sin, and he can remove any bitterness or discouragement that may harbor still in our hearts. And yes, he can transform our evil desires into good desires. God is able to do that. He can conquer 135,000 men with just 300 who were obedient to him. And God may not be calling you a mighty warrior in the military sense, but he does call you child. He does call you more than conqueror. And he does call you beloved, whom he will never, ever leave nor forsake. I believe that's one of the lessons we can take from Gideon's life. Now let's move on to Jephthah. I know this is maybe very quick, but again, I'm trying to cover at least three of our heroes. The story of Jephthah, now he's probably more well known because of the rash vow that he made, that if the Lord would grant him victory in the battle, what did he vow he would sacrifice? He said, the first thing that comes out of my tent, that's what I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. Well, what was it that came out of the tent when he was victorious? It was his own daughter. And he decided he could not break his vow. But before we get to that part of the story, first I want us to realize something about God's mercy, his grace, his patience, and his kindness. In Judges chapter 10, <clears throat> read along with me in verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the god of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who, had, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Now, they were oppressed as a direct result 
of the Lord's anger because they had forsaken him and they had served the very gods of the land that he said, you are not to serve their gods. And then they cried out confessing, we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And then the Lord's response at first will surprise some of us. Verse 11, the Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. First time anyone ever reads that, they're pretty much in shock, right? Would God really say, just go to those same gods you've been serving all this time? I will not save you this time. I've saved you all those other times, and you continue to serve those other gods, so go to those gods and cry out to them to save you. Ah, yes. But then look at verse 15. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And then this treasure of a verse that I find in verse 16. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. You know what this verse tells me? It tells me that at the deepest core of God's heart, we find mercy, compassion, patience, and kindness. Remember when God revealed his Ten Commandments to Moses there on Mount Sinai? And while he was up on Mount Sinai, the Israelites adulterated themselves by serving a golden calf that Aaron had made. And God said to Moses, get out of my way. I'm going to remove all of these people, and I'm going to start over with you. But that's not what he did. When God revealed to Moses who he was and his character, he, he, he passed over... Uh, Moses, he showed him his backside and he said, and this is what Moses could hear, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so when God raises up Jephthah in response to their confession and repentance, it reminds us of the core of God's heart, where we'll find mercy and compassion, patience and kindness. One other thing to note about Jephthah, you know, he was the son of a prostitute. The result of sin, but God used him to save Israel in their time of need. Jephthah was ostracized by his family. He was shut out of any inheritance by his family, and yet God decides to use him into a might, to make him into a mighty warrior, and the elders of his village call on him to be their savior. When we say that God is merciful, that word can also be translated as compassionate. It means that God withholds the punishment that he and you know we deserve. Compassionate means you can know what it feels like to be in pain or to be needy, to be utter dependent on someone else's kindness. You know someone's suffering if you've been through that suffering yourself. You have more compassion for a beggar 
if you have ever been in that situation where you need someone's kindness or assistance. And the Bible tells us that we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who sympathizes with our weakness because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so therefore we can come boldly to the throne of grace, to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God in his mercy chooses often to treat us not according to what we deserve, but according to our need. We know we deserve condemnation. We know we deserve punishment. And instead, God punishes his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross so that we may be freed from guilt. We, on the other hand, were dead in trespasses and sin, but because God, who is rich in mercy, he's the one who makes us alive in Christ. Mercy and grace, very much similar ideas, but grace is more like receiving what we don't deserve in terms of eternal life and in heaven. If mercy is not receiving the condemnation that we deserve, then grace can be contrasted in that we are receiving the gift of eternal life that we don't deserve. Did I say that right? Mercy is where we do not receive the punishment we do deserve. And grace is where we receive the gift of eternal life that we do not deserve. God could have left us to our own devices. He was in every right to do so, just like he could have done to the Israelites. But God chooses to bless and forgive. And it does not mean that God is soft on sin. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ, and you'll see that God is not soft on sin. What Jesus suffered there is what we deserved. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And the Bible says that God is also slow to anger. Sometimes we wish God would be quick to anger. I know there are some instances in the Bible where those who had sinned were punished immediately. Sometimes we wish the evildoer would be punished immediately. I know that all of you here, if you had someone tailgating you on the freeway, urging you to move over, even though they were speeding way past the speed limit, and you finally pulled over, and a few kilometers down the road you see that they were pulled over by the police, I'm sure all of you would be quite satisfied that justice came swiftly. Am I right? Yes. So sometimes we like it that justice comes swiftly. Thankfully, though, justice doesn't always come swiftly and doesn't always come swiftly to us. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God's patience is on a whole different level than what we know and practice. And the Bible says also he is abounding in kindness. Even small obediences get rewarded richly. Remember that. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, long-suffering, and abounding in kindness. And these verses here in the book of Judges remind us of that exactly. Jephthah is raised up, he wins the victory over them, and the Israelites are no longer under the same oppression. But we have to remember that if we want to see God's mercy and grace, we must, like the Israelites did in this time, confess our sins and show genuine repentance. That's what they did. You know, when it says that we confess our sins, it means that we say the same thing as God about our sins. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we, are, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
That word for confess means to say the same thing as God is saying about our sin. If we try to excuse it, if we try to justify it, if we try to say it wasn't really me, if we do anything but agree with God about our sin, then we haven't really confessed our sin. Now, before we close the story about Jephthah, what about his daughter? Was she actually sacrificed as a burnt offering? I know that's the burning question on everyone's heart today. Well, most likely she was not sacrificed as a burnt offering, and here's why. Most likely because God forbids the sacrifice of humans. It was one of the ways that, in the practices of the Canaanites that God said, do not practice as they do. Secondly, there would be no priest in Israel who would have officiated such a sacrifice. And thirdly, there was an alternative for those who were dedicated to the Lord, and that was a lifetime of service. And when you look then at Jephthah's daughter, how she mourned when she realized that her father had made this vow, she mourned, I will never marry, indicating that this would be a life of celibacy. Now, the third story, and this one is much quicker because I, I think you're also more familiar with this one, is the story of Samson. You know, Samson, unlike the other two, he was actually set apart even before his birth when an angel of the Lord visited his barren mother, promising her that she would soon bear a son and giving her specific instructions to keep the Nazareth vow for this son, having to do with hair, not touching uh, fruit of the wine, the fruit of the grapes, those kinds of vows. Now, Samson's life is truly a contrast if you read his story, you see hu superhuman strength and total weakness at the same time. When he had the Spirit of the Lord upon him, he could tear a lion apart with his bare hands. He could win a fight against 30 men. But he was also easily held captive to his own sensual desires. He was unable to resist the beauty and the seduction of a woman. So the, the beauty or the seduction of a woman made him literally weak in his knees. Well, Samson met his match in a prostitute, Delilah, who lured him into revealing the secret of his strength. And what is amazing about the story is you see him being deceived, and you see her trying to deceive him, and her deception is exposed twice, and yet he falls for her. And you scratch your head thinking, Samson, what were you thinking? And his role as a judge seemed to be over as he spent the rest of his days being shackled in prison and grinding mills. But God still used Samson to destroy the Philistines when the symbol of the Lord's strength on him, his hair, began to grow back. And the Philistines were assembled to offer sacrifices to their God. Samson was called out as a form of entertainment, and he stood between two pillars. And by pushing with all of his might, First of all, praying to the Lord for strength to avenge the Philistines, the Lord gave him the strength. He managed to bring down the temple and kill all of those, including himself. The lesson for us, well, I believe that Samson's season as a judge teaches us how dependent we are on the Lord God for any strength and faithfulness. You know, we call, I call this the rise and fall of heroes. Although Gideon was, by the Lord's own declaration, a mighty warrior, his season as a judge was marred at the end. Because at the end of his life, he did a foolish thing. He took the gold that the Israelites had plundered and he made it into a, a priestly garment, an ephod. And that garment became worshipped. And it says it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Jephthah, whom we just studied, he too was called a mighty warrior. 
but he made a rash decision to devote whatever came out of his house before he even knew the consequence, the full consequences of it. And Samson, too, endowed with the Lord's strength, but his sensual passions became his snare. You know what really drove him was really his passion for vengeance, not so much the Lord's spirit and the Lord, Lord's desire to free the Israelites. And no matter how strong or righteous or wise that you and I could ever be in the Lord's strength and his righteousness and wisdom, we should never think of ourselves as being invincible, incapable of stumbling and falling. We have to remember that we must always depend on the Spirit of the Lord, no matter how greatly we've been used by the Lord in the past. Maybe bringing the gospel to people, to repentance, and building his kingdom, doing the miraculous, never attempt anything without his guidance, his leadership, or his spirit. But the Lord still showed himself strong in Samson's weakness. Even the, followed, uh, the fallen heroes can experience redemption. Of course, the preference is to maintain our close and intimate relationship with the Lord rather than having to need the, the redemption later. But let's not forget, without the Lord, you and I would be just as weak as Samson was how much we need him just to stay faithful. Anything we want to do of lasting worth must be done in his strength. So as we look, up, look at the book of Judges and see some of our heroes here, I ask you this, what kind of generation will you and I be? Are we going to be available to God if he chooses us to use us as the catalyst to bring this generation to a spiritual revival, this lost culture that we live in today. So the stories I've explained to you today hopefully will remind you that God still continues to use those who are fearful and needing assurance. He still uses the outcast and the foolhardy, yet faithful, and he still uses the weak and the defeated to bring about a revival, to bring about change, to bring about victory. Now for next week, We'll look at how bad the decline really got in Israel when everyone did as he saw fit. And I think even today in our generation, many see simply as how, many do simply as how they see fit. And our moment in history is today. Are we going to rise up in the strength of the Lord? Are we going to make a difference for righteousness and good? Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.vk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.